me to the book of Galatians. Paul's letter to the Galatians. We'll be looking at chapter 3 today, verses 1 to 9. Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 to 9. And the title of my sermon this evening, church, is The Man of Faith. The Man of Faith. And once you find your places in your Bibles, loved ones, please stand with me, if you're able, for the public reading of the Scripture. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this evening. Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 to 9, the man of faith. This is the word of the Lord, church, through the words of Paul, starting here in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul writes here, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. This is the word of the Lord, church. He has spoken. Let's pray to him one more time. Lord God, we thank you for this day that you have given us. Thank you, Lord, for just the grace and the gift to really be able to gather again this Sunday, this Lord's Day, to be able to sing songs of praise to you, to, to, um, to, to greet each other with grace and peace, and ultimately to hear your word preached again, Father. I just pray for my church family here and for those and anyone online that God help them, Lord, just to be encouraged by your word this evening. Um, if they need to be corrected or edified or whatever that may look like for my, for my brothers and sisters' individual lives, Help them, Lord, this evening, Lord, to not be mere he um, hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word, helping them to be transformed into the image of, of, of our Lord Christ Jesus, so that, Lord, they not only know you better, but, God, they love you all the more, leading them to live a life worthy of the gospel and all that they do, loving their neighbor in such a way by preaching the gospel of Christ and him crucified to them. I pray that for my church family and anyone here who doesn't know you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that they are here. We pray for their salvation. I just pray that the gospel is faithful preached, Lord, that God, your Christ is exalted in such a way that they are at least convicted of their sin, a rock is left in their shoe, and that they will come to faith today, Lord, believing in you, Lord Jesus, by faith and faith alone, and, and Lord, that they will not walk outside of this church, Lord, before they make things right with you, Lord, um, only, through, only through the blood of your son, Jesus. And God, with all that in mind, I pray for myself lastly, Lord, I am a broken vessel, I am a mere mortal, um, the task of preaching your word, Father, I cannot do it alone. And so, Lord, I am needy of your spirit. Please empower me, Lord, to preach your word to your people so that I am just your mere spokesman, declaring your truth, declaring your word, declaring your gospel, your Christ, um, to your people this evening so that, Lord, they will just hear your word and be more transformed into the image of your son Jesus because of it, Lord. God, we thank you for this day and for this time together. And we just lift up all these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Maybe see you at church. I want to begin with a question this evening. What does it mean to have faith? And just to offer a generic definition, it is to confidently believe in someone or something to be true. For example, modern American culture believes that trusting in yourself is the only way to determine what is true. It is the only way to pragmatically find meaning and purpose in life, it is the only way to discover your true identity alongside happiness in this life. That's what our culture says today. And they would even say that when you have faith in yourself, you are then free to live the life that you wish you had. And we see this everywhere, don't we not? In pop culture. For example, on social media, various platforms, the music you may listen to, the movies that you watch especially, television. We even see this in the public square. 
politics, economics, even in the education, the school systems. And yet, I want to challenge you with a question, a question that you all ought to think about. How does believing in yourself to determine truth lead you to conclude what is absolutely true? And now think about that. Because to believe that you alone can determine truth is really guilty of a narrow kind of circular logic. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, a person knows what is true by believing in themselves, and that same person believes in themselves to know what is true. That's what I mean by circular logic. That's our culture that in order to know what is true, you got to believe in yourself, man. But yet, you believe in yourself to know what is true. That is guilty of circular logic. And the reason why it's so narrow, because you limit all the knowledge of the universe to yourself, to yourself as an individual. And because of that, that type of logic, that type of thinking that the culture thinks about today, it has no reasons to know anything is really true at all. As a result, I want to show you all tonight, loved ones, and any guests here this evening, I want to show you all tonight that there is a better way to understand truth. And it's going to require that you have faith outside of yourselves, not in, your, in yourself, not to yourself, but outside of yourselves. And so, the, so now that begs the question then, where should you place your faith in ultimately? And fortunately enough for us, loved ones, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul, the Apostle Paul offers an example of faith that you all should follow today. Really an exemplar of faith. A man named Abraham who really is the man of faith. Because Abraham's faith is the model for true saving faith. That's Paul's point in our text this evening. That Abraham's faith is the model for true saving faith. And I'll talk a little bit more about Abraham later in our text tonight if you don't know him. But we have to ask ourselves the question, why does Paul say this? Why is it that this man named Abraham, his faith is the model for true saving faith? And to defend his point, Paul is going to give us two reasons in our text this evening, loved ones. The first reason is the absurdity of salvation by works. We're going to see that in verses 1 to 5. And the second reason is the necessity of salvation by faith. And we'll see that at the end of tonight in verses 6 to 9. So with all that in mind, let us begin with the first reason tonight, loved ones, which again is this, the absurdity of salvation by works. The absurdity of salvation by works. Look at your Bibles, loved ones, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, how Paul begins our text this evening. He writes, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And so Paul the Apostle then, he begins the text tonight by really giving an emotionally charged rebuke to the Galatians. And not only does he call them fools, but he is questioning who has bewitched them, who has cast a spell upon them. And yet, when Paul calls the Galatians fools, He is not just merely judging their intellect like, man, you guys are so stupid. That's not what Paul is doing here. Nor is Paul doing so in a way that is sinful. If you were here earlier this morning, Pastor Steve preached through the section in Matthew 5 where Jesus says, don't call your brother a fool. Because if you look at the context of the passage, as Pastor Steve showed us earlier, that is referring to when you're you're really calling your brother, saying for that brother to go to hell. it's, It's an outburst of anger. It's sinful. It's wrong. But that's not what Paul is doing here. Because what Paul is doing here, yes, he is upset. Yes, he is a little bit angry with the Galatians. But as we're going to see as we go through our text this evening, he is completely justified in being upset with the Galatians. Why? Because he is concerned about the Galatians' lack of spiritual discernment. What do I mean by that? Well, look at the word bewitched in your Bible. Other translations will say, who has cast a spell on you? It is both the same word in the Greek. And what that word means is really, at least to Paul's original audience, to give the evil eye. Now that sounds a little bit odd, right? To give the evil eye. And what that phrase means, to give the evil eye, is really just a way of saying that a person casts a spell, a spell of black magic, evil magic, upon someone else. 
That was just a phrase that they threw around back then. And even if you if you were to go to certain parts of the world today, like Africa, Asia, even South America, even the evil eye is still referred to in the same way of of black magic. Like, oh, that person just he's looking at him with the evil eye. He 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 is casting magic on that person. Now with that now with that said, however. Paul was not saying that the Galatians are having spells cast upon him legitimately, right? Instead, Paul's point in saying that, he's saying so figuratively. What do I mean by that? Well, they are so deceived, the Galatians, that it is as if someone had put them under a spell. Someone has hypnotized them to act in such a way, and what Paul is doing here, he's trying to describe his shock at what the Galatians are doing here um, in his letter. And before I can unravel, really, their deception, or what was causing them to be deceived, we need to understand something about the nature of this deception. How, what, why was Paul so shocked? Why was he so surprised at what the Galatians were doing here in the letter? And to kind of understand the gravitas of Paul's reaction here, look at the end of verse 1. Verse 1 is going to give us a clue to really the nature of the Galatians' deception here. Paul writes at the end of verse 1 of chapter 3 that it was before your eyes. Before your eyes, that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And so when Paul says that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified, really before the Galatians' eyes, he is not saying that Christ was crucified in Galatia. Because if you know your Bibles, Christ was crucified in Israel, in the city of Jerusalem. So So what is Paul getting at? Well, by saying that Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified in the Greek, Paul is just saying this is a reference to his public preaching ministry. What Paul is saying is that I, when I first came to Galatia, I preached the gospel of Christ and him crucified while he was in Galatia. And, and this is not the only time that Paul speaks like this. For example, consider, some of the, consider how he talks to the Corinthians. Starting in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, notice the language here. He says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. And so when Paul says that he preaches the gospel, he is really saying that we preach Christ and him crucified. It caused the Jews to be, it was a stumbling block to them because they denied Christ as the Messiah. And yet it was folly to the Gentiles because they couldn't understand how God, the creator God, added humanity to himself to die for the sins of his people. It was foolishness to them. But nonetheless, when Paul and his missionary team preached the gospel, they made sure to preach Christ and him crucified. Or consider what he says a little bit later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1-2. to 2. Paul again says, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom for... I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. And so keeping these things in mind then, that phrase, Christ crucified, is really Paul's summary of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And to help us understand this, Paul actually gives a famous summary of what, are, what is the fundamentals or a summary of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He writes this again in 1 Corinthians, later in the letter, in chapter 15, famously in verses 3 to 4. Consider what Paul says about this summary of Christ crucified. He writes, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That is a summary of the gospel, the the, the gospel of Christ and him crucified. These are the fundamentals, so much so that if you're going to preach the gospel, loved ones, you got to make sure that you at least consider these components to your gospel presentation with those around you. And what are these components? There's really three components. First, you got the death of Christ. Second, you got his burial. And finally, you have the resurrection of Christ. And just to kind of expound upon them very briefly, first you have that Christ died for the sins of his people. Because at the beginning of all creation, humanity sinned against God. And because of that, it led brokenness into the world. It led to a lot of evil into the world. So much so that when we sin, when we lie, when we steal, when we cheat, when we get angry, when we we commit lust, all these different sins, it is not only against our neighbor per se, but rather the image that our neighbor is made in. 
the God and the universe, because we're all made in his image. We have sinned against him, we have rebelled against him, and the, and the penalty of such error against God is eternal death. God is an infinite being. And when we sin against God, when we rebel against him, when we want to be God's ourselves, we commit an, an, an eternal offense to God. And the only thing that's justified at the point is what? Eternal death. And yet the goodness of the gospel is that God so loved the world, right? That he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him, that is Jesus, will not perish in hell for their sins, but have everlasting life. And, he, and, he was, and, and, and we have that hope because Christ died on the cross for our sins, so that we are no longer guilty, but are forgiven. That's what it means for Christ, very briefly, to die for the sins of his people. And yet he had to die, which leads to our second point, he was buried. He actually died for our sins. He was actually buried in the tomb for three days, which leads to the third aspect that when Christ, on that third day, that Sunday morning, the reason why we have faith at all, loved ones, the reason why we're able to gather each and every Sunday to remember what Christ has done is because on that Sunday morning, 2,000 years ago, three days after he was crucified, he rose again from the grave. He was, he, he was who he says he was. He was the Lord, the Savior of the world, Conquering sin and death on our behalf if you believe in him. That is the summary of the gospel of Christ and him crucified. And, and another thing to keep in mind, based on what Paul says here, is that all these events, they were in fulfillment of scripture. Of all the Old Testament promises that, that talked about this coming Messiah, all these promises were fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And the one thing I think we fail to forget, loved ones, especially myself, is that these events... They were not only the fulfillment of scripture, right, of prophecy in the Old Testament, but the thing is, and this is obvious, right, but when Christ was died on the cross, was buried and rose again from the grave, that happened in time and space. This is a historical moment in, in history, right? And so for anyone then today or anyone to automatically discredit the Bible's reliability regarding the life of Christ is like the Galatians, a fool, it is very foolish because this happened in time, space, and history. And not only of his life, and not only is his life then documented in the four eyewitness gospel accounts, but on top of that, we have thousands upon thousands of manuscript evidence to back all that up. And they demonstrate to us, loved ones, and this is to encourage our faith, that they are not made up legends after the time of Christ. Instead, all this evidence that we do possess, they are far closer, even some by a matter of decades, to the very life of Christ. And I'm not bringing this up to say that evidence should convince you of these things, because for some people, it won't. Because some people are going to interpret the evidence differently based on how you view the world. But I do bring it up because it should at least make you consistent with the evidence that you do view. And just to kind of give an example of this, loved ones, think of two ancient texts with me. The first one, the one that we so love as God's word, the Bible. And think of another one. I don't have a physical copy on me, but it's known as, it's, it's an epic poem known as Homer's Iliad. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because when it comes to Homer's Iliad, and if you don't know what the Iliad is, if you've ever seen that, that old movie Troy, it, it kind of recaptures the essence of what that book is all about. Kind of, not really. Hollywood for you, right? But, but when it comes to the Iliad, we have about, last time I checked, a thousand manuscripts when it comes to Homer's Iliad which is pretty impressive. And the earliest manuscript that we have is about 1,600 years removed from supposedly when Homer first wrote it. And I only bring that up because every scholar today undoubtedly agrees that Homer actually wrote the Iliad based on this set of evidence and facts. Now, in contrast, when it comes to the Bible, how does the Bible stand against something like that? Well, let's talk about the New Testament very briefly. The New Testament, we have about 6,000 Greek manuscripts alone. And I'm not even talking about all the various translations or the various quotations of the church fathers at that time. 6,000 Greek manuscripts that's backing up the New Testament as historical fact. And on top of that, you want to know the earliest manuscript that we have of the New Testament? Within 100 years, and depending on what you look at, within a matter of a couple decades, removed from when the biblical writers first wrote it. And so I, I, I share that with you, loved ones. Not to bore you with redundant facts, but because people in our culture will say that, you know what, the Bible is not the word of God, but yet they're quick to say that Homer wrote the Iliad. And yet, if you're consistent, since the Bible has more evidence historically, you have to say that the Bible is the word of God if I'm going to say that Homer wrote the Iliad. Bottom line, when you consider the reliability of the Bible, it presents two things. 
one and outwardly historical account of the life of Christ, that these things actually happen because these are all historical events that happen in time and history. And not only is it outwardly, outwardly historical, but it is also internally coherent. Because if you ever read the Bible, loved ones, or any visitors, from Genesis to Revelation, it is the one unified story of God redeeming a people back to himself again through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't commit errors, it doesn't commit any contradictions, but it presents itself the story of how God has sent his son to redeem us as his people back to himself again. And if that is true, loved ones, which it is, then Christ is really who he said he was, the Lord. And, and that he is really the son of God, that he really lived a perfect life, that he really died for guilty sinners like you and me so that by faith, all would have eternal life in him. And because of that precious reality that we hold so preciously, loved ones, is that your identity is really found in Christ because you are his child, giving you this renewed purpose to live for him. Because at the end of the day, we were made to live for God. He is, the, he is our creator. We're called to live for him. And, and, and on top of that, that you can really have happiness in this life. Because you know why? Because you rest your hope in the one who is goodness. In the one who is beauty. And the one who is love. Who is truth. And we, can, and we know all this is true because three days later, Christ rose again from the grave. This is the gospel of Christ crucified, the good news of Jesus, the good news that Paul publicly preached to the Galatians. And that is also why, why Paul rebukes the Galatians here as well. Because they have turned away from this true gospel to that of a false one. That's why Paul is so shocked. That's why he is so astonished. If you read actually earlier in Paul's letter to the Galatians in chapter 1, verses 6 to 7, he actually summarizes his shock here in light of this situation. Paul writes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And if you recall from earlier sermons I've been preaching through Galatians, these people that were causing the Galatians to fall away from the true gospel, they were Jewish Christians. Jewish Christians from Jerusalem, they were the ones troubling these non-Jewish Christians at Galatia with a false gospel. And if you want to know more historical background to that, I recommend you check out my first sermon on this series because the situation is a little bit more complicated than that. But if I may just put it simply now for you loved ones, these Jewish Christians that came to Galatia, they were teaching that non-Jewish Christians need to be Jewish to be saved. It wasn't just a matter of legalism. They believed that if you want to be part of the people of God, you need to be Jewish like we are Jewish, right? Only then would you be accepted as God's people as we are accepted as God's people. And yet, as we've been going through Galatians, Paul is reminding the Galatians that salvation is not a matter of your ethnicity. You're not saved if you are a Gentile, non-Jew, or if you're Jewish. And on top of that, you're not even saved by your good works. Instead, it's by grace and grace alone. It is God's gift to sinners who repent of their sins and believe in him. As Paul summarizes in Galatians 2.16, a summary of his message here, he says that we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And that word justified, again, because Paul repeats it a lot, is the idea that no one is made right before God. It's impossible. We are inherently sinners. We love nothing but our sin. And so by the grace of God, by sending his son Jesus, he declares us right, not based on your passive works or what you may do to save yourself, but rather what you passively do by placing your faith in Jesus because he is the one who came to be, to, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that by your faith in him, you will be declared right before God. You will be forgiven of all your sins, not based on what you have done, but based on what Christ has done for you on the cross. That is why his sacrifice is sufficient. That's why Christ's death on that cross was enough. Because when he died on the cross as a God, man, he physically atoned for your sins, forgiven you in full, cleansing you in full. And he was able to bear your eternal punishment because he was God in the flesh. 
And it's because of that reality, loved ones, is that's why Paul is utterly astonished at the Galatians for switching their allegiances from trust in Christ to that of really their own good works. And despite Paul then publicly preaching Christ crucified, it is as if these Galatians were under a spell. They were deceived so easily, so quickly, that they must be under a spell. That is why Paul is so upset with the Galatians. They lack the spiritual discernment to know that these Jewish Christians from Jerusalem, they are really the ones preaching a man-made gospel. That's why Paul goes out of his way in the first two chapters of Galatians to really defend his apostolic authority. Because he's not just doing that just to say, hey guys, I'm, I'm really an apostle. But the fact that he does that is because the gospel that he preaches is the one and only true gospel. Not only because he received this gospel from Christ, but his authority to preach this gospel is that from Christ himself. Paul is not an apostle because he appointed himself to apostleship, but he is called by Jesus himself. And because of that, when Paul preaches the gospel, this is not only the gospel that he received from Christ, but it's also the gospel that the other apostles agreed to be the true gospel, so much so that when he preached the gospel to the Galatians, they received it as the gospel. And so for them to to quickly fall away from the gospel to a false one, Paul's like, I'm astonished. I am shocked at your turning away from the truth so quickly. And so in light of this situation then, in Galatia, it leads Paul to rebuke the Galatians as mere fools for doing so. And, and it's because of that love that Paul is justified to be upset. Kind of think about when, when you have, if you have kids and stuff like that, that if, you're, if your kid does something out of line, as the parent, you want to correct your children. Or if you're a teacher, if, you're, if your student does something wrong, you want to correct your student so they don't make that same mistake again. Or more, more broadly, think about um, a government system. If, it, if, it's, if it's enforcing justice rightly, if someone does something wrong in that society, the, 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 the justice system is going to enforce justice based on that person's response. Likewise, what Paul is doing here is that he has to correct his spiritual children. These Galatians, because if he lets it slide, not only is nothing going to be solved, but he risks the, 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 really the opportunity of that. If I don't do anything, if I don't say anything to these Galatians, if I'm not harsh as I am right now, then I risk the, uh, really the opportunity of these guys losing their salvation. That's why Paul is so stern here. That's why he gives this firm rebuke to the Galatians. And to make his point then, he's going he's gonna to give a response. And that's the rest of our text tonight. And he's going to respond first with five questions. He's going to ask five questions to emphasize his rebuke in really a diatribe style. And what I mean by that is that Paul is going to go on a rant for for a little bit as he asks these questions. Because again, he wants to show them that it is really absurd for anyone, the Galatians or anyone for that matter, to trust in their good works for salvation. So look at how he begins this rant, if you put it that way, starting in Galatians chapter 3, uh, verse 2. And we'll go all the way to the beginning of verse 3. This is the first question Paul asks. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? And so Paul only wants to know one thing from the Galatians. And this is really his own way of setting up the series of rhetorical questions as he's about to critique the foolishness of the Galatians for believing a false gospel. And so first look at his first question here. He asks, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? In other words, he asks if they received the Holy Spirit by their good works or when they first heard the gospel of Christ crucified by faith. And this question is really his strongest and primary point where everything else is going to build upon it. Because Paul's point here is that they have received the Spirit by hearing with faith. Why? Because that only happens when a person is born again. But what is the new birth? What does it mean to be born again? Well, Paul says elsewhere to kind of help clarify this. In Titus chapter 3, verses 4 to 7, this is what Paul writes regarding this new birth. What does it mean to be born again? He says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing 
of regeneration and renewal of his Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So there's a lot going on in this passage, but to really get the main point, to be born again here means to be, what Paul says, spiritually regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And to be spiritually regenerated is really to have your old heart replaced with your new heart of flesh. And what that kind of pinches, loved ones, is that before we all knew Christ, we had a spiritually stony heart. We were sinners before God, and we could do nothing to save ourselves because of our sin nature. And yet, according to the word, according to the gospel of Jesus Christ, God sends us the Holy Spirit to transform your heart, to regenerate your heart, to cause it to be born again, and rip out that heart of stone that caused you to do nothing but sin, and give you a fleshly heart, so that when you bask your eyes on the gospel of Christ, you are so convicted of your sin at that point, like, Lord, I have sinned against you. Forgive me, a sinner. And also, it causes us to believe in his son as both lord and savior leading us to be declared right before god or as paul says justified to be forgiven to um to be forgiven and to live for him as lord and savior that only happens when you believe in jesus as lord and savior not by your good works but when you place your faith in jesus as your lord but yet even with that in mind because that's what it means to be born again these galatians despite experiencing that reality however they are still deceived into believing that they can do so by their own good works. And to kind of understand that question then, because I'm making an assumption there, look at the last part of Galatians 3.3. 3. This is how we know that the Galatians were being deceived and how they, that, 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 that they were thinking that they can you know, keep living the Christian life by their own good works, depending upon themselves rather than God's grace. He asks here in verse 3, Are you so foolish, Galatians? Are you so foolish? And although this is another question, really how Paul was using it here, it is really the answer to the previous question. That the Galatians, yes, they have experientially received the Holy Spirit by hearing with faith. But yet, they now falsely think they can keep it by their own works of the law. And that's why ultimately Paul calls them fools, because they began their Christian walk by faith in Jesus, and yet now they're starting to trust in themselves to continue this Christian walk. And look at how he begins to support this reason then. Look at what he says in verses 3 to 4 in Galatians chapter 3. He says, Having begun by the Spirit then, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? And so the Galatians agree with Paul that, yes, they have begun their Christian walk by faith in Christ alone. That's what it means to be born again. And yet Paul rhetorically asks... Why are they now trying to finish, finish this race their own way? And such a question is essential because there is an inconsistency that Paul is pointing out here. Where the Galatians know they began by the Spirit, they are now trying to finish by their own effort alone. Now, I'm not saying that Christians are not responsible to grow in Christ-like holiness. Consider what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 3. He says here that work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so what this is showing us then is that first, salvation, when God saves a sinner, that is a work of God alone. We as mere sinners, we contribute nothing to it. It's grace, it's a gift, we do nothing to it. But after we're saved by our faith in Jesus, the Christian life, growing more like Jesus as we live life here on earth, it is a combined effort of us and God working in us to become more like Jesus Christ. And yet, the reason why the Galatians are foolish is because they're believing that it all depends upon them, their power, their effort to live this Christian life alone. And consider what Paul says earlier in Philippians again. In chapter 1, verse 6, he says here that I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And now think about that closely with me. If, you're, if you look again at Galatians 3.3, 3, you, you notice those verbs, having begun and perfected? Those are the exact same verbs that Paul is using here in Philippians 1.6 about began and completion. You began your Christian life when you first believed in Jesus, and yet what is Paul saying? To bring it to completion? 
It's only by the same grace that empowered your faith to continue this Christian life. And so both Paul and the Galatians, they agree that, yes, we begin the Christian life by God's saving grace, by believing in Jesus and him alone. And yet the Galatians are now living now, causing Paul to write this letter in the first place. The Galatians are living as if this Christian life can only be done in their own strength, as if all of it depends upon them now. And what Paul is saying is that, no, God is the one who began your Christian walk. He saved you. And although you have the responsibility to grow in Christ-like holiness, it is that same grace that empowers you to do so. And to really kind of help illustrate this then, to really show how foolish the Galatians are here, imagine if you were gifted a new car. Pretty awesome, right? Imagine you're gifted a new car and you plan on going to the beach with it to your family. Now, imagine you're, as you're driving to the beach, you, be, you begin your journey, and yet you um, park it on the side of the road, you get out of, your, out of your car, and you start walking to the beach because you believe that doing so will be far more effective and faster. Now, that sounds pretty stupid, right? Very foolish, but that's the kind of logic that the Galatians are doing here. They are going back to a system, the law, although the law is good, the law of God, they are going back to the law of God thinking that could save them. But it was never meant to save them. It is impossible for God's law to save anyone. It shows us how good God is. It shows us how sinful we are. But yet it shows us that the law was never meant to save us. But yet it points to the one who was able to save us. The one who perfectly kept the law, Jesus Christ. And so for the Galatians to then fall back to a way that can never save them, from the way that can truly save them, Jesus, it's absurd. This absurdity of salvation by works, Paul is calling them out for it. Truly, they are fools. Because the same grace that saved the Galatians when they first believed is again the same grace that empowers them to live the Christian life now. And so with that in mind then, look at his answer to this question in the, in the next question in Galatians 3, 4. He says this, that did you suffer so many things in vain then? If indeed it was in vain... And what this question is doing again is that this question is answering the previous question, but in a negative fashion. Although the Galatians agree with Paul that, yes, we we did begin our Christian walk by believing in Jesus, but now they're living their life as if they depend upon themselves. That's why Paul then says, did you suffer so many things in vain? Some English translations will say, did you experience so many things in vain? And just to comment on that phrase, because there is a bit of, 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 of confusion here, some people think that when Paul says suffer, it was referring to persecution that the Galatians did experience. Other people think it was, no, they just experienced whatever they experienced in their Christian life, just because there's a, it's, it's not very clear if it was a good or bad thing. But nonetheless, Paul's point here is that Galatians, if you are really now living your life, as it depends upon you, especially for salvation, then whatever you experience in your Christian life so far, whether it be the bad things of persecution or the good gifts of the Christian life, such as you know being able to know God, to live for him, share your faith with others, or to have that community of the church, all this stuff was in vain then. All that stuff served no purpose because you abandoned that, that, that good news, you abandoned that lifestyle to then cherish something that can never save you, something that was never meant to save you. That's what, that's what Paul is getting at here. And, and the interesting thing is that when Paul says, if it was in vain, what Paul is kind of getting at there, he's not repeating it for the sake of emphasis, but really, it really indicates that Paul is optimistic. And what I mean by that is Paul is optimistic that although the Galatians have swerved violently here, he is optimistic that after he writes his letter, after he puts the Galatians in check, that they will repent and that they will return to the right course of living their life by depending upon the grace of God to live the Christian life. And so Paul is optimistic, which is good news for us, if if we ever find ourselves in a similar situation, more on that later. Nonetheless, to emphasize this point that Paul is making here, he then asks one more question to kind of summarize his diatribe here, his rant. Look at verse 5. Paul says then, Does he who supply the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith. And so Paul closes his rant here by repeating really the same question he asks earlier in verse 2. The one who supplies the Spirit and works miracles among, Galatia, among the Galatians is none other than the God of the Bible, the triune creator God of the Bible. 
Because he alone is the one who is able to powerfully work miracles of salvation in dead sinners like you and me. We can't save ourselves because of our sin. And yet the only person that can save us is that of, the, is that of God. Only he can save us. He alone is capable of ca- causing sinners like us to be born again. And so with all that in mind then, what is the purpose of these questions then again? Well, Paul is rebuking the Galatians for their folly, for turning away from the gospel that could save to that of one that could never and was never meant to save. And really, by Paul just asking these questions, it would have caused the Galatians to look upon their own experience and really to condemn themselves. Wow, Paul, you are right. We did begin our faith. We did begin our Christian life by faith in Jesus. And now that we're trying to do it ourselves, we are really fools. That's why Paul asks these questions. And it's with that in mind, loved ones, we got to ask yourself a couple questions ourselves. Because if we fail to, because when it comes to application, we need to learn the lesson of the Galatians here. We need to learn what, it, what will happen if we lack spiritual discernment like the Galatians here. Because do not think that you can never be deceived, loved ones. Do not think it is never impossible for you to swerve so violently like the Galatians here, away from the gospel of Jesus. I know we have a good church and we preach sound doctrine, but just because you have good theology, just because you go to church, you read your Bible, you pray, you serve in the church, you have solid Christian friendships, I'm not saying that don't stop doing those things. Keep doing those things. That's going to help you to become more like Christ. But just because you do these things, that is not an ultimate safeguard to guard you from being deceived. Because as long as we live in this fallen world, loved ones, Remnants of of the world will still be in us, to be in you, unfortunately. And although we are declared right with God by our faith in Jesus, if we're honest, we all still commit sin. And I don't know about you, but I hate it. I hate that I still sin, right? We all hate it. That's why Paul writes in, in other parts of the New Testament, like in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, that if anyone thinks that he stands, he must take heed lest he fall. In other words, loved ones, you must always be on your guard against sin. Because when you think about it, we're actually facing a spiritual war against sin. And not just a one-front war, but a three-front war, right? The first one is against the sinfulness of this world with, with the pride of life, the desires of the eyes, the lusts of the flesh, all these different things, right? And yet, we got to worry about the prince of the world, Satan, and his demons. And on top of that, we need to worry about the sin within us, our fallen flesh. And so how do we guard ourselves against these various opportunities for us to fall into sin? Because if we're not careful, we will be deceived like the Galatians. And whether it's swerving to a different gospel, we might swerve from the gospel entirely. And so how do we practically guard ourselves from being deceived like the Galatians? Well... The Scottish theologian Thomas Chalmers, he once said something very helpful in a sermon he preached a couple hundred years ago. He says this, that we know of no other way by which to keep the love of the world out of our hearts than to keep in our hearts the love of God. And of no other way by which to keep our hearts in the love of God than building ourselves up in our most holy faith. And to kind of help illustrate what Chalmers is getting at is imagine with me you have an empty cup. Pretend I have an empty cup in here. And since it's empty, it's filled with air. Now, my question to you, loved ones, is that what do you think is the fastest way to get the air out of the cup? Usually when I ask this question, people are like, fill it with water or with a liquid. And you'll be correct. Likewise, in order to get the air of the world out of our hearts, out of ourselves, we must replace it with something greater, something better. The love of the world is already in us because of our fallen flesh. In order to get it out, to, to put it off, you need to put on the love of God. And how do we cultivate a love of God in our lives? Well, Paul says that to put off your old self and to put on the new self in Jesus, you must renew your mind. And how do we renew our mind, loved ones? Through the word of God. It is the Bible 
The Bible teaches us who God is and all of his glory and all of his beauty and all his splendor and all his majesty. It teaches us who God is, allowing us to grow in our knowledge of him. And the more you grow in your knowledge of God, it causes you to love nothing else but God himself. And it's when we bask ourselves in the love of God that your desires for the things of the world start to go out of yourself and you want nothing but to desire the things of God because your heart is so consumed by really loving the things that God loves. And as that happens, you start to hate the things that God hates. That's why reading your Bibles every single day is so important. Praying daily by depending upon God is so important. And even above those things, going to church as well is so important. To have brothers and sisters who are willing to keep you accountable, to speak the truth and love to you so that when you so that when they see you deceived doing your own thing, that they're willing to go and snatch you out of the fire and say, what are you doing? You, you fool. Repent of your sins and return to, to Jesus himself and live for him. That is how we protect ourselves from being deceived. By living in the word, by praying, and by surrounding ourselves with the church, people who are willing to keep us accountable. And really just to show really the, really just how important this is, there, there's, there's, there, um, if you ever read this famous book, it's called The Pilgrim's Progress. Some of you have heard of it, some of you have read it. But if you ever read the very last page of the book, it really shows a, a shocking reality. At the end of that book, after Christian, the, the, the main character in the book, he, he reaches the celestial city, he makes it to heaven, and yet at the last page of the book, this is, this is what he sees. He sees a man named Ignorance, he approaches this, this, the, the celestial city, he approaches heaven, and when he asks to be let into the city, it, find, it turns out that he's not really a Christian. He's not really a Christian, and when they ask for a certificate, if he knows the king, he doesn't offer a certificate. And so what Christian sees is that they actually kick this guy out, and he actually gets sent to hell. And in this last line, look at what, look at what the book says. It says, Then I saw that there was a way to hell, even from the gates of heaven. And, wh- and the reason why I share that, loved ones, is that no matter how long you've been walking with Christ, whether it be two weeks, six months, five years, 30 years, you could walk with Christ however long and be right at the very end despite all the different trials you've gone through, despite the various different tribulations, despite what you have supposedly may have done for the Lord, there is still the possibility that if you don't guard your heart from the love of the world, that you can even be at the very front of the gate of heaven and if you're not known by Christ, then you will be cast off into the lakes of hell forever. Loved ones, we must take heed lest we fall. And so persevere to the very end, loved ones. Don't abide in your own strength. Rather, abide in the strength of Jesus. Because he will keep you to the very end. He will empower you to keep living your Christian walk. And so don't rest in yourselves like what these Galatian believers are doing. Rather, continually rest in the fact that God will keep you to the very end. Because again, the very, salvation, the very grace that saved you in the first place when you first believed in Jesus is the same grace that's going to empower you to live the Christian life so that, what, that the work that God began in you, he will bring it to completion at the day when Christ returns to make all things new. And that is only possible, loved ones, when you embrace really the next reason and really the last reason why Abraham, as, as I mentioned earlier, is the model for true saving faith. And so here's the second reason of why, of why Paul um, says that tonight. The necessity of salvation by faith. The necessity of salvation by faith. And so look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 6, loved ones. Paul writes, Just as Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. And so now Paul is going to use scripture. He's going to use scripture to support his rebuke to the Galatians as he did in verses 1 to 5. That it is absurd to believe that you're saved by your good works. And what, and what, and what, based on what Paul says in verse 6, he's actually quoting from a passage um, back in the book of Genesis, particularly Genesis 15, verse 6. Here's what, the, here's what this text says. It says, And he, that is Abraham, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. But what does that mean? Well, in order to understand that passage, we need to understand who Abraham is first. And I said I'll bring him up later, which now it's later. This is who Abraham is. Abraham, he was a pagan. He was a man who lived in a place called the Ur of the Chaldeas, which is modern-day Iraq. Wasn't living for God. Didn't really care to live for the things of God. 
But then God calls him one day to eventually move to the land of Canaan, which is modern-day Israel, and eventually God makes a promise to Abraham and to his descendants. It's a threefold promise. He tells Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to give you three promises. One, I'm going to make you a mighty nation, which is the nation of Israel today. Two, I'm going to give you a people, which are the Israelites or the Jews today. And lastly, through your seed, Abraham, through your family, all the families, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And, we'll, and we're going to return to that point a little, um, a little bit shortly. But then after that promise, the story continues. And then we get to Genesis chapter 15, where Abraham, he's kind of doubting. He says, Lord, you promised me that through my seed that you're going to fulfill all these promises. But the problem is, I am old, my wife Sarah, she's old, and the only person that can that can get my inheritance is a guy named Eleazar. And so, Lord, how is this going to work out? And you know what God says in response? He says, Abraham, from your seed, there, there is going to be a son that comes from your very own seed, and he is going to carry out these promises as I told you. And after that, he tells Abraham, Abraham, look to the stars because it was night. You see how multitude the stars are? That is how much that is how multitude your people are going to be. And it's because of that reality that when Abraham hears that, he believes God. He believes in his promises. And because of that, the Lord counts him as righteous. He declares them right with God to have a relationship with him. Not because of what Abraham has done regarding his works. He wasn't even circumcised yet, right? But yet, it is based on him believing in God's promises. That's what we get here in Genesis 15:6. But yet, why is that significant? Why does Paul bring up this quotation in the first place? Well, look at the next verse, in verse 7 of chapter 3 of Galatians. Paul writes, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And this passage is interesting because Paul is making a comparison here. In the previous passage, he's talking about the faith of Abraham, that he believed in God's promises, so much so that he believed that God was going to keep his promises and do them. And so by comparison, anyone who believes in God by faith, and this is a shocking statement, they are also sons of Abraham. But what does that mean? Well, when you think of being a son of Abraham, you think of that in an ethnic sense, right? That if you are ethnically a Jew, then ethnically you are a son of Abraham. But yet, Paul is, is, is bringing his meaning even more deeper. Because what Paul is saying is that just because you are a Jew ethnically, it is possible that you are not a spiritual son of Abraham. Because it is possible for anyone to be a spiritual son of Abraham. And the only way to be a true son of Abraham is if you believe in God by faith as Abraham believed in God by faith. That is what makes you a son of Abraham. Not solely in an ethnic sense, right? But really in a fuller meaning that for those who believe in God's promises, who believe that God is real, that he ultimately sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, if you believe in God, you are a son of Abraham. Because Abraham believed in God by faith, you believe in God by faith. That is what makes you a son of Abraham. And to make that point even more clear, consider what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, as he offers another scriptural support here. He says, And the scripture, foreseeing that God will justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. The interesting thing about this passage is that the scripture here is in a sense being personified, that the scriptures foresaw. This was a very Jewish way to explain um, um, Torah or, or the Bible. And what this is getting at is that when the scripture speaks, when the scriptures say something, it is as if God himself is speaking. And the only way that we can even say that, loved ones, is based on what Paul says later in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, a passage that we all cherish and perhaps even have memorized, that all scripture is what? Breathed out by God, that this is not just words written down by man, which it is true, but they are inspired by God himself, so much so that every single word, every single grammatical construction is breathed up by God as if they are God's very own words, and they are. And so when scripture speaks, God is speaking. And so what he is about to say right now regarding the scripture quotation, it is from the very authority from God. And even me preaching to you, loved ones, if I've been faithful to the text, 
to the meaning of the text, then I'm not just merely musing about the text to you as a mere man, but rather God is speaking directly to you as a mere vessel based on what he says in his word. That is what the word of God is. That's why we revere it with so much reverence because it is the authoritative word that tells us everything that we need to know in life based on what God has said in his word. So with that in mind then, what is that scripture reference then that he says here in verse 8 of Galatians 3? Well, Paul kind of combines two scriptures here. Again, in Genesis, it's going to be Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, and later, a later one in Genesis chapter 18, verse 18. Let me read them individually, and I'll explain them. Paul says, in, or sorry, what, what Genesis 12, 3 says, it says, I will bless those who bless you. This is God speaking to Abraham. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. A little later, God says again to Abraham in Genesis 18, 18, Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. And so there's a lot of content that these two verses are being combined together by Paul, so that whatever we see in verse 8 is a combination of the two. And so what are they ultimately saying then? That the scriptures predicted that God would save not only Jews, but people who are also non-Jews. People of all the nations, people like the Galatians, people like you and me, unless you're ethnically Jewish. What, what Paul is saying here is that thousands of years ago, before Christ even came to the scene, God made it a promise that I am going to save a people back to myself again, not only consisting of the Jewish nation through Abraham's seed, but from a people from all the nations around the world. And so when, so that, so when we look at this passage then, all the, nations of the, all the nations of the world will be blessed in Abraham. How does that actually come to pass, though? How are all the nations in the world blessed? How, how are they going to receive this blessing from Abraham's line? Well, that's the key, right? Abraham's line. There will be a seed that would come from Abraham. And that seed would immediately be Isaac, one of Abraham's sons. But it goes a little bit more deeper than that, right? Because when, when God made that promise, he says that through your seed, Abraham, one of your descendants, they are going to be the reason why all the nations are blessed. And who is that descendant? Well, if we go back to the beginning of the Bible, God makes a promise not to Abraham, but to the first humans, Adam and Eve. After they sinned against God, they rebelled against him, and he's given the curses. God says something very interesting. He says, woman, talking to Eve, there is going to be enmity between your descendants and that of Satan, the serpent. And yet one of your descendants, a seed, he is going to crush the head of Satan. And although Satan is going to bruise this savior, this, this wounded victor's heel, nonetheless, the serpent's going to be destroyed because of that seed from the woman. So who is that seed? If you read through the biblical storyline, it eventually reaches Abraham. And if you go down Abraham's descendants, you go to Isaac, then one of Isaac's sons named Jacob, then one of Isaac's 12 sons named Judah, and then from Judah goes to the kings of Israel, ancient Israel, would have been, would have been um, sent down to a guy named David. And if you go all the way down to David's sons, there was one man who is not only the fulfillment of Scripture, who is really the ideal Davidic ruler, but he is the seed of promise, the promise that is meant to bring blessing to not only to the Jewish people as a Savior, as a promised Messiah, but to all the nations and that person as revealed in scripture is none other than the son of David the son of Abraham that of Jesus Christ the Messiah not only was he fully man to be the son of David and Abraham but he was also fully God in the flesh so much so that he was born through the Virgin Mary 2,000 years ago sorry if I'm spitting I'm just super excited good thing no one's sitting up front he was born through the Virgin Mary. He lived a perfect life, and so that he, he was the only one that perfectly obeyed the law. So much so that he died on the cross and rose again three days later from the grave because he is who he says he was, the Son of God. And the reason why that's good news, that's actually the good news of, of the gospel, is that if you believe in this promised Messiah, if you believe in Jesus, not by good works, but by your faith in him, you are saved. How? Because Christ dies in your place on the cross. We deserve nothing but eternal condemnation by the Creator God for all that we've done. But yet by you believing in Jesus, by faith alone, all your sins are placed into Christ's account, and he dies on the cross for your sins in full. It is finished. No more. I have, I have paid your debt in full. Therefore, by your faith in Jesus, your sins are paid in full. And in exchange, Christ gives you his perfect righteousness. 
Not that you did anything to earn it, but by a gift, he gave it to you. So that when the Father looks upon you, you are no longer a guilty sinner. You are no longer in condemnation, but because of what my son Jesus has done for you, because you believed in him by faith and lived for him, repented of your sins and lived for him, you are forgiven. You are my adopted son and daughter. You are forgiven. You are saved. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if there is anyone here who doesn't believe in Jesus, I exhort you, repent of your sins and believe in Jesus. Not only because he is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promise in the new, but historically, these things have actually happened. He is who he says he was, the resurrected Lord, so that he not only came to save you from your sins, but so that you can have the life that you wish you had, to live a life to his glory to enjoy him forever, not only in this world filled with great evil and brokenness, but a day when he will return to make all things new. It's only possible by faith in Jesus, not by your good works, not by believing in some other false god, but by believing in Jesus who is our great God and Savior. He is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of all scripture. And so for Abraham then to believe in the promises of the Messiah, that's how he was saved, right? But for us, we're saved just like Abraham. The only difference is we believe in the fulfillment of those promises that Abraham trusted it in. And you want to know who fulfills those promises? Again, the person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And so really the faith of Abraham is the model for all the people of all the nations to model after. Because as as Abraham believed in God and his promises by faith alone, you loved ones. And anyone here to be saved, to, to be reconciled back to God, you must have that same faith by believing not only in the promises of the coming Messiah, but in the person of Jesus Christ who is the fulfillment of these promises. And the crazy thing is about this reality, loved ones, is that this is why Paul even preaches the gospel in the first place. This reality that through Abraham's seed, all the nations will be blessed as fulfilled in Jesus, this is really an eschatological necessity. This is something that needs to come to pass, that God has promised, has foreordained, will come to pass, because it is our Christian responsibility to make sure it comes to pass. We are the means to make sure that this, that this promise happens. And the crazy thing about that, loved ones, is that when you preach the gospel, when you preach the gospel to your, to your unsaved co-workers, family, neighbors, you are fulfilling prophecy. You are fulfilling the prophecies that, the that God first made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 3, as we preach the gospel now, and God is going to fulfill that promise until, all, until the gospel has been preached to all the nations. And you know what Jesus says then? Then the end will come. It is our responsibility to do so because this is a promise that God has, has said that will come to pass. That's why Paul preaches the gospel. That is why we must keep preaching the gospel as well. And so it's with all that in mind, loved ones, that Paul closes his, his text here in Galatians chapter 3, verse 9. He says in summary, So then... Those of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And so everyone who believes in God by faith is blessed with Abraham. And the reason why they're blessed, as I mentioned earlier, is because, again, they're saved by faith. That is why Abraham was called the man of faith, because he trusted in God's promises by faith. Likewise, we are saved by God, by our faith in the fulfillment of those promises, the man Christ Jesus. And as a result then, loved ones, how, shall, how, how then shall we live in light of this as we close? I know of no other thing, but because of this beautiful reality that we must live a life worthy of the gospel. And all that we do, loved ones, how we work, how we treat our families, how we conduct ourselves with our neighbors on a day-to-day basis, we must live a life worthy of the gospel in such a way that people actually see Christ in us, that we are building friendships, that we are cultivating relationships in such a way that we not only take a a legitimate interest in that person physically, but we're so concerned about them spiritually that we want them to know about the greatest need, and that is to know Jesus. And one thing I wanted to bring up is that this was about a month ago, and a lot of you here were not not there to listen to it because this was given at the morning, But Brother Joseph Boyd, he gave us a challenge of preaching the gospel. And if you forgot his challenge, he said that, here's some gospel tracts. I want you to try to pass it out to at least one person a week. Try try to help with your personal evangelism. Here's a gospel tract. Try to pass it out to once a week. And I wanted to ask you guys, in light of that, how many of you have actually done that? How many of you have actually done that? In light of that, how many of you have actually shared your faith since then? And just to kind of put myself under the bus, I'm not really a guy who likes passing out tracks because it doesn't really come natural to me. But I will tell you one thing, is that I love having conversations with people. 
I love talking with people about Jesus. I love making friendships so that I can share with them the gospel. Whether it's on the airplane, I love, I love going on the airplane because if I, if I talk to the person next to me, like, hey, you know Jesus? They're like, nope. Oh, they're stuck with me for two hours, you know, whether they like it or not, right? And so, so they got to suck it up, but that's an opportunity to get to know them and to preach to them the gospel. Or for another example, I like, I like getting my, my, my hair cut at a local barber. Not because it's cheap, it's not, right? I can do it myself, it's so much easier. But I love talking with those guys because that's an opportunity that I can share with them the gospel. So much so that there's been opportunities that when I'm talking to my barber, all the other barbers come around if they're not working to ask me questions so that I can have, have that opportunity to, to share Christ with them. I go to the same gas station to build that friendship. I go to the same restaurants, not because it's good food, but so because I know those people, because I want to build those friendships to share the gospel with them. And I'm not saying that to exalt myself. I fail every single day. There's times when I get afraid. There's times when I fall short. I'm like, oh, you know, I could have I shared Christ in that moment. But bottom line, with that in mind, do we share the gospel and how we live our lives? Do we live a life worthy of the gospel? Because again, not only is this, is this in fulfillment of scripture, but it is our responsibility. As Jesus says in the Great Commission, it's not the great option, right? It's something that he commands us to do. At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says to his disciples and to us, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now go, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I don't bring this up to condemn you, loved ones. I just want to encourage you to be faithful in your calling to make disciples of all the nations, to, make a, to live a life worthy of the gospel, to build friendships, to preach, the, to preach Christ whenever you can, so that by the end of time, when Christ does return, that those that you preach the gospel will not be condemned themselves. This is our responsibility. This is our calling. I would even argue this is why the church is still here, to preach the gospel to the nations, to fulfill the scripture, to fulfill the promise that God first made to Abraham so that we can see it to fruition, so that God can come with his kingdom in his fullness and make all things new. That's why Paul preaches the gospel to the Galatians. That is why we ought ourselves to live a life worthy of the gospel, both with our words and our actions, until the return of Christ. And so with all that in mind, loved ones, I'll ask the question that I began our time together. Where should you place your faith in ultimately? Well, you should place your faith in the gospel of Christ crucified as revealed in the Bible. Because as Paul proved tonight in Galatians chapter 3, Abraham's faith is the model for true saving faith. We receive that not by our good works, but by our faith in Jesus. So as a final exhortation to you, loved ones, rest in God's grace to help you live the Christian life to the very end. If he who began a good work in you he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So rest in that reality, loved ones. Rest that you have been forgiven ever since, that you have been justified in Christ. That is going to be the same grace that empowers you to live your Christian life all the way to the end. And as you do that, as you, as you walk as pilgrims through this world, make sure to live a life worthy of the gospel as well. Making friendships, building, building relationships so that you can ultimately point people to their greatest spiritual need, and that is to know Jesus. Whether it be through your actions but ultimately through the word so that they can, they can also hear the goodness of Jesus and come to faith as well. With all this in mind, let's go before our Lord in prayer and we will get ready for the Lord's Supper and a final song. So join me, loved ones, in prayer one more time.